Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Charlie Jamison, the founder and portfolio manager of Jamison Coots Bonds, an investment management firm that invests money on behalf of its clients, which include some of Australia's largest super funds like Australian Super, as well as some private institutional clients into government bonds, the conservative part of portfolios that often provide a safe haven during market dislocation. We talked to Charlie about what goes into those portfolios and what makes a quality government bond portfolio and why investors should be attracted to them. Please remember that this podcast is not designed to be, nor is it specific advice. Listeners are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast, as well as seeking their own advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Charlie Jamison, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you very much, David. Charlie, if we could kick off, we haven't had you on the podcast before. If you could perhaps kick off and just give us a little bit of, of your background, please. So my background prior to starting uh, our current business, Jamison Coote Bonds, uh, was as a portfolio manager, primarily in New York and London, managing uh, US Treasury bonds and European government bonds uh, for Merrill Lynch Bank of America. Um, fascinating times to be involved in those markets. I guess uh, I was managing a US Treasury portfolio uh, when September 11 occurred early in my career, uh, and then managed European uh, portfolios through the GFC, through the Eurozone crisis, and through the Greek crisis. Uh, so I guess COVID-19 is our, or was my fifth crisis in terms of managing. Uh, and so we are lucky to have a bit of a playbook as to some of the things we're looking at with regard to the way our portfolios might perform with the risks that our clients uh, you know, face and some of the liquidity considerations that we need to, to make in terms of making sure that our defend and protect offering, which is a, a fixed income offering uh, only in government securities, uh, is very, very fit for purpose. And I think that's quite topical in fixed income funds at the moment because a lot of folks have raised sell spreads and, and had very poor performance at a time when you'd be expecting your defensive assets to do quite well. Uh, this is absolutely why you do have that ammunition storage uh, and you really do need to be able to access it quickly. And I think, um, you know, sadly for us, it, it's taken this crisis to really showcase uh, the differences in some of these fixed income uh, product uh, offerings uh, and, and really, uh, you know, for investors to experience that for themselves. So, yeah, fascinating times and, uh, and I guess an interesting background to, to kind of look at this with a slightly different lens, given we've been through a lot of these previously and had a lot of experience with quantitative easing programs and, uh, and uh, quite uh, funky central bank policy as we're currently experiencing. Charlie, why did you set up JCB and what does it look like now? So Angus, uh, my, my original founding partner who's still with the business and I uh, met in London in the early 2000s. In the offshore markets of North America and Europe, there is a lot of product specialty in fixed income. And in Australia, there hadn't really been that disaggregation between, say, government bonds, corporate credit bonds. And, you know, we've all just heard about Virgin and how, how difficult that's been 
and high yield securities. And so we wanted to offer something that was quite uh, niche in terms of just doing the government piece. Of course, prior to the GFC, there wasn't much government debt around in Australia, uh, only about $40 billion in a multi-trillion dollar economy. Uh, and now, of course, we're going to have a huge amount of government debt, or we already had prior to COVID-19. Uh, but we really just want to focus in on that um, you know, most defensive and liquid uh, part of a portfolio. It's a critical jigsaw, we think, in portfolio construction. It does allow for reduced volatility and, and can you know, move forward in times of stress, as we're currently seeing. But most importantly, it's highly liquid. And so if you do need to, to get to that money or that allocation because you have a margin call or you have lifestyle needs or the ASX is at 4,500 and you think it's good value, you need to be able to move quickly. And with a lot of other products that have been uh, showcased to investors, uh, they get very difficult at that time. And I think a lot of fixed income funds have just been through that. So we really wanted to, to offer that. We offer a domestic fund a global fund, both hedged and unhedged to US dollars. And more recently, we've offered an alpha fund, which is, um, doesn't have the, the, the underlying necessary uh, exposures, but is just trying to capitalise on, on the market moves as we see them using a slight amount of leverage. Uh, it's two times levered. So a little bit different, but again, very liquid and only government securities. And that's quite different from a lot of those other uh, types of offerings, which have tended to be very corporate credit heavy and quite low in asset quality. And so we're trying to, again, offer something that's a little different uh, in and around that. Uh, and our solutions have been you know, market leading in, in what we do. Uh, unsurprisingly, they've done very well as the world's not doing so well. It's one of the ironies of, of being a, a high grade bond investor, but it showcases why it's an important allocation uh, for folks. And uh, certainly you know, with capital uh, secured by the governments, uh, and primarily the Australian government in our domestic fund, uh, investors can have a lot of confidence that uh, whilst it's a low expected return uh, asset allocation, uh, you can sleep pretty soundly at night. And what's the headcount look like at the moment and also the funds under management and how's that distributed across those strategies? Sure. So uh, headcount is currently seven. We have uh, three in a Singaporean office, which we opened in 2018. Uh, and, four and the rest in Melbourne? Or in Melbourne. Now we're supported by about uh, 25 folks at Channel Capital, which do our middle and back office, uh, you know, some of our performance reporting, and of course the distribution. So that means that the investment management team, of which we're six of the seven and a compliance person, can spend the majority of our time focused on markets and portfolio management, which is where our clients want us to be. Uh, prior to the crisis, we had about uh, five and a quarter billion dollars under management. Uh, clearly, as a result of some of our superannuation clients needing monies to pay for the early release of super and also to reinvest in the equity markets, we, we experienced uh, pretty large drawdowns through March and April. We serviced more than a billion dollars worth of requests and we had no trouble servicing that where a lot of other folks had, had uh, a lot of trouble in fixed income because they were invested in corporate credit and things that weren't liquid. Uh, and so now, as we sit here, we're uh, about four and a quarter billion. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, the retail side of our business uh, is a little smaller than the institutional side, uh, but we do have about one and a quarter billion dollars of retail assets. And then uh, we manage money for some bulge bracket superannuation funds. Uh, they're all publicly listed, so we can tell you we manage for 
Australian Super, Uni Super, uh, Qantas Super, a few others. So some good, well-recognised names, and and hopefully um, you know that gives potential investors uh, some surety that uh, you know we've been through very stringent due diligence processes and uh, and managed to to clear those at the top end of town, and uh, we're thrilled to be able to bring these solutions to uh, to Australian investors at a time where. Now, clearly, there's a lot of uncertainty looking forward. And, uh, and as I said, whilst they are not the most exciting sometimes, uh, sometimes boring is good. Uh, and and uh, as we've just seen over the course of this year, uh, that can actually uh, move you forward whilst other things are going backwards. So, uh, you know, we've got a really good pipeline, a healthy pipeline of, uh, of future business in front of us as well. Now, you said performance has been good. What, what has performance looked like uh, in recent times and I guess over the longer period as well, Charlie? So our domestic solution, which has been running since uh, 2015, has annualised uh, around about four and a half-ish percent returns in an absolute basis. Uh, in our world, we've generated strong alpha outcomes. And so as we, we pride ourselves on managing interest rate duration, which is a challenging thing to do. You do leave yourself exposed to Trump and his 140 characters on Twitter and some of these other crazy headlines that we see from time to time. Uh, but we've managed to generate around about 90 basis points of gross alpha uh, over that time on an annualised basis. And that's pretty high for our industry, uh, which is why we've been lucky enough to catch the attention of some of the bigger institutional managers. Our global fund uh, launched uh, initially, uh, there's a master fund that runs out of the Caymans in 2018. We put Australian uh, feeder funds on that in 2019, has had fantastic uh, outcomes. So that uh, unhedged global fund, once you pick up the currency volatility combined with high grade bonds, you get something that can perform incredibly powerfully, we call it negatively correlated in a portfolio context. Uh, because of the way that, you know, when uh, risk markets tend to roll over, the currency often goes with it. So, uh, and over the course of, of the start of this year, that global fund unhedged had, uh, you know, mid-20s in terms of outright performance, so, you know, low 20%. Uh, last year, I think it did uh, in the teens. In its first year, it did 20. And this is from a time, clearly, when the currency came off from, you know, kind of 80 cents and all, all the way down to 55 in March. and now back at 65. That's a different style of allocation. It's what we call a very good left tail in terms of normal distribution outcomes uh, type solution, but you need to be prepared for the currency volatility that comes with it. The hedged returns uh, have clearly been uh, somewhat milder, but they've also been very healthy. Uh, and our, our alpha fund, which is just a, a launched at the start of this year, is seeking to, to do some RBA cash plus 250 basis points. We're actually well, well in excess of that already. At year to date, it's up about 3.5%. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to make that a very low volatility, uh, very um, shallow drawdown. It hasn't had a drawdown yet. Uh, product that is essentially going to replace what a bank account used to be. Liquid with a reasonable return, uh, but you need to have great surety that uh, that's not going to go too far. I guess the other solutions being domestic and global because we do have a index beta that we follow. So we do follow an index of government bonds. When equities go up a lot, they tend to come off a little bit. That is part of their negative correlation. When equities come off a bit or other risk assets sour, they can slingshot forward pretty quick as we've seen in some of these periods like 
uh, Q1 of this year or the fourth quarter of 2018 where they performed very, very well. And, and what has more recent performance been like? You said it's been good, but what sort of numbers are you talking about across those strategies? Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to quickly log in and, and check them. I've got them right here. So um, do you want like yearly or just in the last few months? or what, what, I, I think, yeah, just to give our listeners an idea of what sort of drawdown or volatility um, they can expect from these type of strategies, it'd be quite helpful. I, I, I think most listeners tend to understand the equity parts of their portfolio very well. They understand that airlines and toll roads um, and airports uh, aren't doing well, and that's obvious um, as to why, or a portfolio of pubs is, is not doing particularly well. Um, I think they often struggle, you know, often if we get into the alternate asset category where we'll have a, a portfolio of diversified assets, and then I think they also start to struggle around the debt side when advisors and people like myself start talking about the capital stack and alpha and you know, how it is looking. And then when you say, well, this is government bonds, you know, this is the safest of the safe. And then perhaps there's a negative return for a month. They kind of struggle to say, well, hold on, if you are lending money to the government um, and at worst, they don't pay that back. Um, where, where are all these negative numbers showing up this one month in terms of, you know, that, that piece. So I'll ask you just to give a little information about what that performance has been like. But I'd also ask you maybe while you're digging that out to talk about in your slide deck, you talk about duration management specialists. And you've also flagged in your introduction that you see yourselves as having particular expertise in that area. But I'd first like you to maybe define what that actually is, why it's important, and then why you're differentiated. Sure. Uh, so uh, I guess, you know, just to, just to answer the return question first. So last month in April, where obviously equities did move forward, the domestic fund was down 21 basis points. And that's versus an index outcome of down 43. So very good outperformance. The global hedged uh, version was actually up 60 basis points, whereas the unhedged with the currency volatility was down a little bit over 5%. Now, that's obviously come off very big numbers on a year-to-date basis. Uh, and the Alpha Fund was up 48 basis points. So in terms of outcomes, they're, they're very slight. They're not going to be anything like the outcomes you'd expect from an equity-like product. Uh, but clearly, over the course of time, uh, they can do a good job in terms of uh, you know, defraying those types of uh, you know, um, volatility outcomes that a lot of folks want to take out of their portfolios. Uh, one of the reasons I can't get my uh, return numbers is I'm on the wrong computer with the laptop now. Give me one second, and I'll give you the year to dates. Uh, to the middle of uh, May, let's say, to the 15th of May. So the, the domestic fund had a, has had a return of 4.1% year-to-date to the middle of May. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the global hedged version, 4.48, and these are all gross numbers. The global unhedged, 14.8%, so very healthy returns. Uh, and the alpha fund, 3.3%. So again, you know, reasonable returns. If you think about those returns risk adjusted, given that these are, uh, you know, the highest of, of high quality government bonds, uh, we think they're really healthy in, in what is now a zero interest rate, rate world. And so one thing that we do love talking to investors about, because it is a little bit confusing, is that bond returns are not, uh, you know, predicated on the observable yield of those instruments. Clearly the price of bonds moves around quite a lot. 
Ironically, even when bond yields go negative, they can generate very powerful positive returns. Uh, in the five or six years now since German interest rates have been negative, German bonds have generated a positive total return five out of those six years. So, uh, and, and you know, sometimes these returns can be really eye-watering. Last year uh, in August, when we were having a big bond market rally, Swiss government bonds had a yield of minus 1.1%. So if you lend your money to the Swiss government, you're guaranteed to lose 1.1% on an annualised basis. That sounds absolutely absurd. But uh, the total return of that index year to date at that time was 14.5%. So the, the irony of all of that is that, as confusing as it is, bonds have actually performed very much like positive yielding bonds when they go to negative yields. They are still very negatively correlated. They are defensive assets that a lot of folks flock to. And importantly, they have very high convexity. Now, that all starts to get a bit technical, but uh, it certainly means that when we looked at the Japanese or the German or the Swiss kind of examples, there's still a role to play. But I fully appreciate with my marketing hat on, it's going to be a very difficult conversation for me to have with uh, with folks in Australia about why you should own negatively yielding bonds. So uh, thankfully, Charlie, I think here and in the United States, that's not going to occur. How does that happen? How does an index generate 14% uh, across an underlying negative yield bond portfolio? Well, obviously, you know, if we have deflationary expectations, then you would happily own a negative yielding bond because your purchasing power under a deflationary scenario would actually be higher despite the fact you might have some loss if held to maturity. Um, you know, th these things, the one big conversation that is never had when we talk about all of these negative yielding bonds in the world is it very much matters which jurisdiction you invest in those securities from. And so just to give you a very simple example with the numbers that no longer exist after COVID, but let's just say Australia had interest rates of 1% and we know in Europe the interest rate is negative half a percent. If we exchange currencies in what's called a, a forward uh, foreign exchange transaction, what we essentially do with the other market participants is we guarantee to pay their interest now, obviously, with, as an Australian dollar owner, you are to receive 1% annualised and you're supposed to pay the euro holder negative half a percent. Well, clearly, you can't pay a negative interest rate. So you actually just return less capital at the end of that transaction than you borrowed, thereby adjusting for the negative half percent interest rate. So automatically, there's a 1.5% income, theoretically, to be gained. And so if you look at a bond that has a negative... 0.5% yield, for instance, that can become a positive yielding asset through time. Now, the interesting thing about that is those negative yielding bonds are often under the most economic sufferance, and they also receive the most policy accommodation from their central banks. So they have tended to do very well. But on the surface of it, clearly it sounds absolutely absurd, doesn't it? I'm, I'm making money investing in negative yielding bond assets on the other side of the world. Well, the reality of it is, is that on a hedged basis, people have actually made a lot of money. Um, and actually people in those domestic economies who haven't um, experienced uh, those uh, hedge benefits have also made money as bonds have become less, uh, more negative, I should say. And clearly, you know, that just changes the capital value of the bond. So when you buy a bond, if you hold it to maturity, it has zero volatility. It will pay you, uh, you know, whatever coupon interest, if that's negative, 
then you'll buy the bond at a premium. Uh, but clearly, uh, there is a, a capital uh, valuation or revaluation story that occurs across the life of that asset. And it does mean that at certain times in the cycle, like we've been through in March, you can say, well, I think risk assets have come off far enough here and my favourite companies are deeply discounted. I'm going to cash in some of my trading at a premium government bonds uh, and move through that tactical asset reallocation very quickly and very effectively to sell something at a premium, to buy something at a discount. And we love seeing our investors utilise our product in that way. It's absolutely the way that we see, you know, a tactical asset reallocation in North America and Europe, where clearly uh, many investors have had a lot more exposure to government bonds. Uh, and, and, you know, we think that that's why they form a critical part of an asset allocation. It does, we're not suggesting it should be a static allocation by any means, uh, but clearly when asset valuations do get very high, and obviously that means the probability of corrections uh, does increase because valuation isn't as compelling. Uh, then it can be a sensible place to, to sit out for a little while whilst you're pretty sure that you're going to be earning something along that journey by virtue of the government guarantees. Uh, and then you have the optionality to, to redeploy later on as, uh, as clearly markets reprice and they often reprice very quickly as we've seen. And Charlie, what sort of proportions do you think what you see as the best managers around the world would normally allocate to this space? Oh, look, it's a great question. Uh, look, it really does depend on, on the motivations of the investor. Clearly here in Australia at the, the top end of the institutional town, there are liquidity requirements. And, you know, I guess this early release of Super is a classic example of why you do need to hold some liquidity around the portfolio. Uh, obviously, if anyone is, is using, you know, margin facilities or, or has foreign currency hedges, which might require cash financing, uh, liquidity is pretty important. Otherwise, you can be forced into a situation where you're selling your favourite assets uh, at discounted uh, valuations, and that's not something we want to see investors uh, have to, to, to do. Um, so it really is, a, you know, it's more of a life cycle question, I guess. If you're very young, you should have no government bonds and you should have very high uh, growth allocations. You've got lots of time to ride the cycle of the markets. Clearly, as you're getting older, you, you might want to move to a slightly more defensive portfolio. And I guess in that instance... Uh, you know, we see investors with anything from, you know, kind of 10 to 30%. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of different fixed income product. And we, uh, as a fixed income manager of just government bonds, I'll be the first to tell you, you should also consider very good quality credit managers and, and high yield managers or private debt managers. Problem is, it's actually quite difficult to find them. And sometimes we need to go through episodes such as this to find out who's any good and someone uh, who's not just, uh, you know, riding the high tides, hoping that... Uh, no storms develop. So uh, that's why I guess, uh, you know, folks at, at Coda are very good at, uh, at finding those folks that might work in conjunction with us. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's really a question for each investor, but uh, very much predicated on risk tolerance levels and, and age and expected, uh, you know, forward volatilities. And Charlie, what sort of uh, organisations does the JCB product set get most compared to if you're into one of those bulge bracket super funds, uh, talking to them about their allocation to you? Who would they most closely line up against that um, in terms of that offering? Yeah, so we're fairly unique, I think, in terms of, of what we do. I think that's um, one of the reasons it's a, we're, we're drawn to the space is it's somewhat niche -y. Clearly, to, to go to a very pure uh, asset portfolio, you can use the passive funds. Now, 
Uh, we've managed to outperform them pretty considerably and we run better risk-adjusted returns over time. I think passive is a great vehicle if there's a very clear and identifiable trend. And certainly over the last 30 years, that trend in interest rate markets has been to lower yields. But that trend is somewhat complete. We may go to negative rates in time. I certainly hope that we don't. Uh, but I'm not to say that we won't, having seen it happen in so many other parts of the world. Uh, but that's where certainly alpha uh, generation does become very important. And I think uh, institutions are drawn to, to managers that can do that on a consistent basis. As I said, most of the fixed income offerings in Australia, a lot of the, the, you know, the bigger legacy funds were started at a time where there was very little product to actually include in portfolio construction. And so as, by virtue of that, they tended to have very wide mandates, i.e. they could own lots of different types of assets together to build up an investable portfolio. And most of them have done a pretty good job of that. The problem with that is that we tend to find that a lot of those managers own a lot of corporate credit, uh, whereas the indexes that they manage against, with the government being the biggest borrower uh, in, in the country, the index is about 90% government only about 10% corporate, very roughly, in terms of a composite bond index. And we see the domestic managers with you know, anything up to 50% plus corporate credit allocations. Now, in benign times, that's absolutely fine and will actually normally outperform. The problem for investors is that they think they're buying defence and in times such as we've just been through, those types of allocations go backwards along with their growth allocations. And so... It actually isn't defensive. So as long as you uh, are fully cognizant of, of what you're investing in, uh, you know, go for it with your ears pinned back. Uh, but I think that in, you know, in terms of most folks coming to fixed income want that highly defensive characteristic. Uh, they want them, you know, our portfolios to zig when other markets zag. And, you know, it's that negative correlation function that we particularly see in times of stress that I think, uh, you know, we're starting to win that battle with the market to say this is a, a really different type of, Portfolio allocation actively managed doesn't mean that returns need to be as low as you might otherwise expect. In terms of our domestic product, I think since we've been running the product over, you know, since 2015, we've had 20 months where the bond market has gone backwards. We've outperformed 19 of those uh, examples. So we pride ourselves on our risk management in terms of protecting capital if there is to be a drawdown, but making sure, you know, investors fully participate uh, in the full gambit of bond outcomes and clearly uh, in more stressed times and uncertain times such as we're in, and no doubt we'll talk about the economy uh, going forward in a moment, um, we still think it's a critical uh, asset allocation and can play a very big role. It's a lovely segue there, Charlie. Um, you should be the host. Um, <laughs> where do you think we are in the cycle and what is your outlook? Clearly, this year has been very unusual. I can't think of too many other pandemics, but it's interesting you also note that um, you know, I, there, there haven't been too many times in my 18-year career in advising clients where it hasn't been a point of, oh, gee, it's an interesting time to be investing. There's always something, albeit that you can look at the statistical data to support that, well, this time, it, right where we are at the moment, it, it is very, very unique. Um, what's your sense of where we're at? We were talking on air about, you know, offices coming back and, gee, will, we'll, you know, office-based, service-based workers in Australia like ourselves actually go back to full capacity in the office because, you know, it, it's pretty comfy two days, three days a week at home and seeing more of the kids and actually being 
probably more productive in a net sense um, without the exhaustion that goes with it. Um, but it leads into where do you think we are in an economic investment sense and, and looking forward, what do you see? Yeah, look, there's no question that, that COVID-19 uh, has changed everything and, and, you know, some of which, look, most of which for the worse, but there, there have been some certain winners in, in some of this. I think, you know, initially there was a pretty widespread denial that this could escalate to this kind of episode. Um, certainly, you know, with a Singaporean office and folks that had lived through SARS and some of these other episodes, uh, we were, were speaking about this with our investors early on. And then in monitoring, you know, global news flow and things as we often do, there was real complacency, particularly in the United States uh, and Europe throughout a lot of February. This was page 10 news and, you know, we were mainly focused on things like, uh, you know, the, the Democratic Convention and uh, Kobe Bryant's helicopter accident, these kind of things. We were just staggered that people weren't uh, looking at this more. Uh, and then we've had this, this enormous, you know, catch-up moment where we saw the, the full anger of markets in March uh, and that induced central bankers to provide us with the full bazooka of, of you know, potential supports. And so now uh, a liquidity fueled rally off uh, what had been vast capital destruction at that time. And in most crisis episodes, the, the playbook is fairly similar. So you do get a chaotic and an overstretched uh, sell-off where clearly uh, a lot of people are forced to transact and it's not altogether rational. And there's a huge amount of uncertainty as to what things might look like going forward. Then the policy response comes in and you do get a bounce. And that bounce can last for, you know, for quite some time. Certainly in the GFC, it lasted for quite a while. I think in, uh, after the initial sell-off in 07, you know, markets stayed uh, up towards their highs again for a lot of the, the latter part of that year before ultimately uh, you know, coming off again later on on, on the you know, more kind of reality of the situation. There's no question uh, that central bankers are doing things that are completely uh, extraordinary. And for now, you know, markets are wanting to give them the benefit of the doubt. But we're in a really interesting phase now as we're trying to, you know, reopen the economies. Obviously, the expectation is that with vast amounts of testing and with very good technology, we can open the front door knowing that the virus will come with us to some degree. But uh, isolated episodes can be shut down fairly quickly. And, and we're very lucky in Australia to have medical capacity to get help to folks that are unlucky enough to, to come in contact with the virus. Uh, but you know, as we were talking about uh, before we got going, David, Australia is a small open economy. We're very uh, dependent on trading with a very large uh, neighbor being China, which is by far and away our biggest trading partner. And then the other things that we do an awful lot of is tourism and education. Now, you know, the clear dangers to, to markets, I think, is that this liquidity fueled rally runs out of steam at some stage and the vast insolvency which will come later on when things like job seeker and job keeper, job keeper start to wind down. Uh, you know, there are a lot of folks that are getting cash flows now that won't be getting cash flows later on. Uh, we know that there is pretty likely to be vast unemployment that will occur as a result of this. But then there's a few other things that are concerning us. Clearly, the almost bipartisan uh, support now for pointing the finger at China as, uh, as the, you know, the main culprit in COVID-19. I think that only gets worse as we come towards the presidential election in November. And then the other thing that concerns us as a, you know, a global investor is Italy. Italy is on a totally unsustainable debt footing. 
and it doesn't have the support of its European neighbours. It has the third largest outstanding stock of debt uh, in the world, and it's very likely to go into its own depression. Now, we saw in its own health crisis, its neighbours were unwilling to help. It was actually turned to China in the end to get medical assistance. Uh, and there is very little support from the Northern Bloc, led by Germany, to uh, underwrite Italian debt. And that's a very obvious flashpoint for us. It's not happening tomorrow, but uh, down the line, it's certainly something that we're watching because uh, any restructuring of Italian debt would be very chaotic for markets. But I think more if we just focus on the macroeconomics of it, uh, we are somewhat in the eye of the storm. I think markets are pretty forgiving. If we have a violent shutdown, and we've had almost a free fall in economic data like none of us have ever seen, as long as markets believe that we can re-engage fairly quickly, they're okay with the shutdown. You know, they will absorb that. They realise it's a very, uh, you know, one-off and, and very isolated hit. Where it becomes more problematic is that if we try and re-engage in, in getting the economy up to a 90 or a 95% economy or whatever that number actually transpires to be, and then we hit these W-like recovery moments where we do get outbreaks, where we do have to shut down, I note in, in, you know, Singapore was the poster child of COVID-19 management early on. They've been in full lockdown again recently. Uh, Northern China is currently in full, going through full lockdown again at the moment. So it's, we think it's likely to be a stop-start type environment and markets hate the uncertainty of that. So uh, we do, you know, caution investors to think that through. Clearly, you know, you've got a lot of opposing forces. The reality is pretty obvious of what this means for global economies. But the unknown is how much central banks are willing to support this and whether uh, at, you know, markets have a forever forgiving view of that central bank support. We don't want to hit a tipping point where markets no longer trust the central bank or believe in their promises. Uh, we get extraordinary comments made from central bankers all the time. You know, it's seemingly, um, if you've taken them by their word, you have absolutely lost your shirt doing what, what I do uh, because they chop and change their tune all the time. Powell was only saying in September when we had some funding difficulties in the United States, there's no chance we'll see a recession anytime soon. Well, that's now absolutely certainly occurred and things were slowing before this anyway. Uh, he doubled down on that in a 60 Minutes interview over the weekend saying, there is no chance we'll have a depression. When we hear things in those absolute terms, uh, you know, we always worry because we've seen central bankers and Powell in particular flip 180 degrees throughout his brief tenure as, uh, as the chairperson of the Federal Reserve. Uh, remember, all the way back to 2018, one of the things that took down equity markets at that time was he said that uh, we're a long way from neutral interest rates and we're likely to exceed them. He made those comments in October 2018. Uh, we had a chaotic equity market and bond market sell-off uh, in the back end of that year before bonds started to rally. And he completely changed his tune and started cutting interest rates in 2019, only a few months later on. So they do have a bit of a history of swinging wildly with, with the, uh, the way the policy is implemented. Clearly, in this time, we do take our hat off to them for now in putting these support mechanisms in underneath the financial systems to try and get health outcomes that can allow us to re-engage. But the real problem here is that the cash flow shockage compounds over time. And so... As much as the government's trying to bridge that gap, any businesses that were struggling a little bit going into this uh, have now burnt up any capital that they had. And, and we think a lot of them are unlikely to reopen. 
Uh, and there are some real horrible stories in and around that. I read a, a piece in Spain saying that 10% of registered businesses uh, filed for bankruptcy in April. This is staggering statistics, 160,000 bankruptcies. Uh, you know, all of those folks that have put up their working capital, gone. All of their employees, unemployed. Uh, and this is something that Australia is very lucky to be saved from currently with JobSeeker and JobKeeper. Uh, but as those programs roll off come September, I think, you know, the market's going to be searching around for what does that go forward look like? I mean, we know that, you know, travel and tourism and uh, education from internationals coming in is not going to occur this year in terms of internationals uh, coming in. Uh, we know that, you know, we are going through somewhat of a diplomatic spat with China at the moment who have put tariffs or banned beef exports from four abattoirs, put tariffs on barley overnight. Uh, the Morrison government seems to want to be pretty intent on following through with an investigation into COVID-19, something which Trump has backed as well. So there are obvious things to, you know, to, to kind of see some caution ahead. Uh, but, you know, as we sit here and look at markets, um, you know, they are doing a very good job of trying to be optimistic. Uh, and if things improve and, and the economies open up and we can live with COVID in some way, shape or form, they may very well be right. But uh, you know, we do have extraordinary outcomes here. I mean, clearly, we've got enormous amounts of government bonds to issue uh, as an Australian government. But we also have an active quantitative easing program from the RBA. And so, again, ordinarily, you'd think with lots more government bonds in the world, there would need to be some concession in the pricing to garner demand. Uh, but with the RBA standing vigilantly alongside uh, the Australian Office of Financial Management, who issues a lot of those bonds, you know, bond yields really haven't moved too much. And, and in some respects, Aussie government bonds look quite attractive versus their global peers. So these are quite extraordinary times. Australia issued uh, a new 10-year bond uh, in the week before last. That would have uh, been the week of, uh, say, uh, 11 uh, May. We had a $52 billion order book for those bonds in 24 hours from Japanese investors, from European investors, US investors, and domestic investors. Uh, and the government only ended up issuing $19 billion. But these are, are numbers that, you know, we've simply never really considered before in Australian fixed income. And I guess it showcases to the world that as a AAA rated issuer with a you know, good, strong government, Westminster government, good property rights, fairly high yields on a global basis, plenty of people are very happy to come and, uh, and invest here. Uh, and so I think it's probably caught everybody a little bit by surprise just how much demand there really was once the coffers have been opened up and, um, you know, once we start to issue in much bigger sizes, that only improves the liquidity of these markets, uh, which are a bit smaller than their big global counterparts. Charlie, thank you very much for your time this morning. That's been very helpful in a part of the market that I think a lot of clients often uh, struggle to understand and be completely across. Thank you. Uh, to yourself and the team at JCB. I hope you all keep safe. Good on you, David. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.